Corinthians chapter 15, verses 58 to 58. Uh, we are, as you're turning there, we're finishing up um, our chapter on the resurrection. And um, we'll have some time in our small groups to talk a bit about uh, what we learned about the, the resurrection. But I do hope that it has brought to um, some good conversation uh, that you guys have been actually been thinking a, a little bit more about what the resurrection means for our lives um, and what it means for your life. Um, and so I'm excited for the kind of discussions that do arise um, in the weeks to come because of the resurrection. And so First um, Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 58, um, this is what the Apostle Paul writes uh, in verse 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be ch- changed. For this imperishable, perishable body must be put on, must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on Im- immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, or my beloved family, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor labor is not in vain. Um, Let's pray together before uh, we start. Father, we do ask for your help, um, that even as we open up the scriptures, um, we are reminded that you do speak powerfully through it. Um, And so, Father, even now, we pray that uh, even as we close off chapter 15, that you would arrest our hearts, that you would help us to see uh, the wonder uh, uh, that Jesus is um, in his, not only his death, but also in his resurrection and what that means for our lives. I pray that that would be something that would be profoundly shaping for our Christian lives Um, from now until really eternity. And so, Father, we thank you. Um, We love you. And we ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Um, Have you ever been spoiled by the ending of a movie or a story? Um, Have you ever spoiled the ending of a movie or story for someone else? Uh, Megan and I had a friend who spoiled the ending of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Um, I didn't know him at the time, but he had spoiled the ending for for all of his friends, back when um, the book had just come out, back in I think uh, 2006. Um, now, how many of you guys know what Z- what a Zanga is? You guys familiar with Zanga? <laughs> Lizzie is. <laughs> Audrey, oh my gosh. Uh, okay, so uh, except for like the adults, like none of you guys. Uh, okay, so Zanga was like the pre-Tumblr. Okay, but even Tumblr now is outdated. Okay, but um, Zanga was like your personal blog. Uh, friends could follow your Zanga, and you could follow theirs. So our friend, for some reason, decided to share his feelings about the ending of the Half-Blood Prince um, to all of his friends, to all the people that were following his Zanga. Uh, but what you need to know about the story is that our friend decides to talk about the ending of a book that was released less than 24 hours prior. Okay, that's just bad form. Uh, but back then, if you wanted to get the earliest release of the Harry Potter books, you'd have to wait in line at a Barnes & Noble or a Border, which is no longer in business. Uh, for the midnight release, okay? Um, there were no Kindle or Apple books. You just had to wait. And by the way, I'm about to spoil the ending of the Half-Blood Prince. And so if you haven't read or watched it, you've been warned. 
Uh, also, like, what's wrong with you? Like, the book came out 15 years ago and the movie came out like 12 years ago. So you guys should know by now. But um, not realizing that he was going to spoil the ending uh, before anyone had even finished the book, our friend writes on his Zanga this statement. He says, wow, can't believe Dumbledore died. Um, <laughs> um, if you've ever been spoiled by the ending of a movie, uh, then you'll know that it takes away all the suspense and mystery that you would have experienced if you didn't know the ending. Now, I know many of us like this, the feeling of suspense, like when Endgame was coming out, which by now feels like forever ago, um, I got off social media for like two weeks, just, just in case there were like leaks, people were talking about it. But for some, for, for some of us, we don't mind getting spoiled because sometimes we just hate the suspense. Like, for example, many of you uh, know that I hate the Tower of Terror. I just hate drops. Um, but what made it less terrible was when I was dragged on the ride by Megan. Thankfully, Megan knew when the drops would happen. And so um, because the Tower of Terror was one of her favorite rides, Megan had memorized the, the patterns of every drop. And so every time a drop would come, she would tell me. I mean, obviously that didn't really help, but at least at the very least, knowing when the drops would happen at least prepared me to face the drops when they came. And then Disneyland replaced Tower of Terror with Guardians. And apparently now you can't predict any of the drops at all. I mean, I wouldn't know because I hate the ride. Um, anyway, the point that I'm trying to make is that, I'm, that is that knowing the story's conclusion shapes and changes how you experience the story's present. Knowing the story's end um, actually gives meaning to the story's present. And, and knowing the story's end prepares us for what we should be doing um, and focusing on in the story's present. And so for most of us, it's, it's safe to assume that we've been, um, I think for all of us, living in a fog for the past 12 months. It's hard to know um, where you're going in the day-to-day -day when it looks like the same, um, even as things are starting to reopen again uh, with the possibility of us regaining some sense of normalcy. Um, we all know that there's still some sense of TBD um, in the background, like reopening, as we know by now, is, is not the end goal. Um, something that we've been talking about for the past month, month and a half, is that the end goal is resurrection. It's not reopening. Um, and so, so how does knowing the conclusion of not just COVID um, or racism or high school or college or life after college, but the conclusion of our li entire lives, how does knowing the conclusion of our entire lives shape our daily choices and decisions today? Um, how does knowing our stories end prepare us to live in our stories present? Does it make sense? And in our passage this evening, the, the Apostle Paul is going to give us a sneak peek preview into our future so that we know exactly how knowing our story's conclusion shapes living in our story's present. And so as many of you know, we've been in chapter 15 for the past month and a half. Um, just for some recap, Leighton started chapter 15 with the resurrection's historicity. People actually saw the risen Jesus, the Apostle Paul included. It actually happened. Um, and then from verses 12 to 34, we saw what happened if our resurrection was denied. All sorts of bad things would happen if our resurrection would not happen. Um, because it would be to say that Jesus' resur resurrection did not happen. And, and what we know is that what God does for Jesus, he also does for us. Um, and then last week, Keith showed us what our resurrection bodies would be like. Um, our re resurrection bodies would be um, physical, immortal, and imper impervious to sin, decay, and death. And then finally, in our passage tonight, it weaves all those different strands and threads together, bringing um, our res resurrection to its final conclusion. And so um, if you're following along in our notes, um, our key idea, the main idea of this passage is that a, li a life centered on Jesus, the Messiah, means that we live in light of the end. We live in light of the end. And there are two requirements 
for living in light of the end. Two requirements. The first is that we know what happens in the end. We know what happens in the end. Now, in, uh, in 1952, um, a woman named Florence Chadwick attempted to swim the 26 miles between Catalina Island and the California coastline. Um, and everyone believed that she could do it because she was the first woman who successfully swam across uh, the English Channel. Um, you can look her up. She's amazing. Um, and as she began, she was flanked by small boats that watched for sharks and were prepared to help her if she got hurt or grew tired. And after about 15 hours, a thick fog set in and she couldn't see a thing for those 15 hours of swimming. And so she was just swimming for 15 hours straight. A thick fog had rolled in, couldn't see anything. Eventually, Florence began to doubt her ability. Uh, she, began, she began to wear out and she told her mom, who was in one of the boats that was flanked alongside her, um, she was telling her mom that she didn't think that she could make it. But her mom on the boat said, we're almost there. We're, uh, we're, we're so close, like we're, we're almost there. And, and, and so Fl Florence, uh, with her mom's encouragement, uh, swam for another hour. But by then, after that hour, she was done. Uh, she was so fatigued and so cold that she couldn't, even, she couldn't even see the shore. And so she stopped and asked to be pulled out. And as she sat in the boat, uh, this is really tragic. As she sat in the boat, she found out that she had stopped swimming just one mile away from her destination. Like she, that was how close she was. Um, if, if the fog was gone, if it had dissipated, she would have been able to see in detail the people on the beach cheering and waiting for her on the shore. That was how close she was. But because she couldn't see the end, she stopped. And what the Apostle Paul wants us to do as we look at verse 50 is to help us persevere in our daily circumstances by looking at our circumstances in light of the end. Now, as we know, we've been looking and talking about the end. You guys should know what the end is by now. It's resurrection. And so what the Apostle Paul is trying to do is he's trying to lift our gaze just a little bit higher to see the horizon ahead to see what awaits every follower of Jesus if you follow him. And so I'm just going to walk us through the text because I want us to know exactly what will happen in the end. I want us to know what happens in the end so that you, are, you have the assurance that you need to persevere. So take a look at verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, for those of you who are a bit more astute, this verse would seem like the very opposite of what the Apostle Paul has been arguing for all along. Paul has been arguing for a physical bodily resurrection, but it sounds like here in verse 50, he goes in a complete 180. So what does the Apostle Paul mean when he says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God? I thought that the kingdom was very fleshly, was very earthy. That I thought that the kingdom of God was going to be on earth. Well, the words flesh and blood was the Apostle Paul's way of talking about human mortality, okay? Human mortality, flesh and blood was a way of describing a body that can decay, that was susceptible to death, that wears out, that breaks down. And so when the Apostle Paul says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, he doesn't mean that physicality cannot inherit the kingdom. As we know, um, and as we've been talking about, the kingdom of God refers to God's saving rule in space on earth, not somewhere in the sky. And so what does the Apostle Paul mean? Well, easy. It's right there in verse 50. He says, the Apostle Paul parallels the first statement with the second statement. Flesh and blood parallels with what's perishable, while the kingdom of God parallels with what is imperishable. In other words, 
the body that you have right now. So think of your body, like, okay, touch your body, like touch your shoulder. Okay. The, the body that you have right now is perishable. Okay. And our bodies right now are not fit to inherit and inhabit God's new world. The reason why is because our bodies are susceptible to decay, to breaking down, to giving up, to dying. While God's kingdom is forever. It is it lasts for eternity. It is incorruptible as we've learned in first Peter. And so we, what we need is a body that will last forever with the capacity to enjoy God's new world. But if you are thinking about what's happening in Paul's train of thought, this presents a problem. I mean, just, just think about it for a second, okay? Just, just get in the mind of the Apostle Paul for a second, for a second okay? Because if the dead are raised to life with imperishable bodies, which is something that we've been talking about, okay, the dead coming to life, what about those who are alive currently? Okay, have you guys ever wondered that? Okay, so we, we know that the dead will rise, but what about those who are still living? Like, what if right now the sky rips open and Jesus returns tonight, tomorrow, or the day after? I mean, we have no idea when that will be, um, but we know what will happen to the dead. They will be raised, but what about for those who are still alive and haven't died yet and Jesus returns, whether it's us or it's our children or our grandchildren or, or so on? Um, what about, do you guys get what the, the problem? The, the, what about the people who don't go into the grave? Do they not get a resurrection body as well? Do you guys see what's going on here, the dilemma? Um, does it mean that we're out of luck? Like, like sorry, you didn't die, so uh, no resurrection body for you. Um, does that mean that we'll be stuck with our mortal bodies, where our bodies will have issues, will decay, will be susceptible to death for the rest of our lives? We'll take a look at verses 51 to 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Now, the Apostle Paul, okay, understand this, okay? The Apostle Paul expects that even those who are alive, so even if Jesus were to come back today, those of us who are alive, who believe in Jesus, like us, along with those who are dead, will be changed, as the Apostle Paul says in verses 51 to 52. In fact, he says that it will be instantaneous in the blink of an eye. It will happen in a moment at the last trumpet, okay? And what the Apostle Paul is not talking about is a rapture. That's not what Paul is talking about, where we vanish into heaven and our clothes and our stuff are left behind. What Paul is talking about isn't a rapture, but resurrection, an immediate transformation and resurrection at the revelation and appearing of Jesus Christ. So. TLDR, if Jesus were to return back today, okay, if you were to appear today, what, would, what that would mean for us Christians who are alive would mean that our bodies would be transformed instantaneously when Jesus appears. And because our bodies have not been instantaneously changed yet, we, I think it's fair to say that Jesus has not returned yet. And so the Apostle Paul assures those who are still alive that they don't have to die in order to receive their new bodies. Okay. Instead, when Jesus reappears and when he brings million, millions of his followers out of the grave, at that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the people who are alive, whether it's us or future followers of Jesus, the Apostle Paul says, we will all be changed. We will all be transformed in one cosmic act of new creation when God's spirit will echo throughout the entire universe in one cataclysmic moment. That is how instantaneous our transformation will be. And how will God do this? How will God achieve this? Take a look at verses 53 to 54. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, 
And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the, and the mortal puts on immortality, stop there. When the kingdom of God finally arrives on earth, when Jesus reappears on earth, when he returns to rule and reign over his entire creation, people who are alive, when that happens, will not lose their mortal bodies. Instead, what does the Apostle Paul say? He says it will put on the imperishable. Our perishable bodies, perishable bodies will put on the imperishable. And so what was once perishable will be clothed with the imperishable. What was once mortal will be clothed with immortality. And so the Apostle Paul, if you've noticed, is an extremely efficient writer. Okay, so when he repeats something twice, it isn't because he's verbose. He wants us to get something. He wants us to underline, to rub in as hard as we he can, to stress and to make it clear to all Christians, both in Corinth and to Christians today here at Lighthouse Community Church, that we will not lose our bodies. We will not lose our bodies. Rather than losing our bodies, God himself will be the one who will clothe our bodies with immortality. Okay, so think of the body that you have right now. I don't know what that will mean, but at the very least, it means that we will somehow acquire and have some form of immortality in addition to our mortal bodies. God will be the one who will clothe us in a new, permanent, and indestructible physicality. God himself will be the one who makes us fit to inhabit and inherit his new world. I mean, that is amazing. And when that happens, when, our, when God clothes our bodies instantaneously with imperishability and immortality, then it will fulfill two passages in the Old Testament. Take a look first at the second half of verse 54 um, into verse 55. It says, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And so, and, and so the Apostle Paul sees the resurrection and the clothing of our mortal bodies with immortality as the death of death. And what the Apostle Paul sees in the resurrection when Jesus returns is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 25 and Hosea chapter 13. Those are the two passages that Paul quotes in those two verses, verse 54 and 55. But I want you guys to put your finger briefly in 1 Corinthians, and I want you guys to turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 8. It's a little bit of a Bible study. You guys, are, you guys should be familiar with it. But Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 8, this is really important. I'm, I'm gonna, I promise you guys there will be a cash out for this walkthrough verse by verse discussion, okay? You guys will have some application. Don't worry, okay, guys? Uh, but Isaiah chapter 25, um, just to set the context, Isaiah sees a future when God will return back to earth and when he makes the world anew. And this is what he sees in verse 6, okay? He says this, On this mountain, Zion, the Lord of hosts, will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Okay, this is the future. This is life after heaven, when, when, when heaven reaches down to earth. Okay, and verse 7, And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. Verse 8, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth for the Lord, Lord has spoken. This is the end of the story. 
Some of you have wondered if there will be eating and drinking in the new heavens and new earth. And guess what? There is. There will be. Of course there will be. Again, we're not losing our bodies. Rather, our bodies will be clothed with immortality. The only difference between our bodies now and our bodies in the future is that, again, our bodies will, will no longer decay. Our, our bodies will no longer get sick, no longer be susceptible to sin. Our bodies will be impervious to time and even death itself. And I want to just stop here. And like I've mentioned, I want to give you guys some brief application. The world that we live in right now, as we know, is obviously broken. I mean, it really is like waves upon waves of darkness. It's like there's one thing after another. I mean, people in this world, in this country, ourselves, we, we, just, we just can't stop being evil. Even though cases are going down, COVID is still a thing. Whatever the motivations were, whether it was racism or not, there are murders happening all throughout the country that are attracting national attention. We know that everything isn't as it ought to be, and the creation continues to groan. This is the reason why we need to know the end of the story, because it is so possible to see that tomorrow is the end of the story, that what we see on the news is the end of the story, that COVID is the end of the story, that racism is the end of the story, that injustice is the end of the story, but it's not. That our lives right now are not the end of the story, that there is a purpose in our pain. Even though we have no idea when the end will be, we have certainty about what the end will be like. The end of the story tells us that there will be an end. There actually will be an end to sin. Evil, sickness, pain, brokenness, injustice, violence. The end of the story tells us that there will be a people who are united under Jesus. There's no bickering or complaining, no political tensions, no political strife. We will all have one gracious and wise ruler who rules over the entire world. The end of the story tells us that darkness will be overtaken by the light of God's presence. The end of the story tells us that God himself, and I want, I want to slow down here, that God himself will wipe away every single tear from our eye. That every tear shed because of shame, because of sin, because of loss, because of grief, because of injustice, because of pain, because of death, all of the tears that are caused by those things will be wiped away. And the person who will be wiping those tears away from us is not your pastor, it's not me or your parents, it is God himself. The end of the story tells us that God himself will rid us of our own shame. And most of all, the end of the story tells us that God will swallow up death forever. Death, the last enemy, will die. It will be destroyed. Death will be nowhere to be found. And it is no accident that at the end of the Bible, the end of the scripture story in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, is no coincidence that the Apostle John cites this very same passage in Isaiah. And he says this in verse 4. He says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And all of that has happened, has started because of the resurrection. And by, by swapping out the word forever with the word victory, which in the Greek word, as some of you guys know, is Nike, by swapping out forever with victory, the Apostle Paul reminds us that not only is death gone forever, but death has been defeated. The resurrection of our bodies is God's triumph and victory over death. Do you see how vital our resurrection bodies is? Our resurrection has to happen 
Otherwise, God himself will be defeated. But because the resurrection of Jesus is true, and because our resurrection is true, then it must also mean that death will finally have its last say in the death of Jesus Christ and in his resurrection. The resurrection of our bodies must happen if God is to defeat death and renew the whole creation. That is the reason why I had us walk through verse by verse this passage. This is why we need to know the end of the story as we live in the thick of it. We need to know that there is an end in sight. There will be a day when we will be freed from the burden of our sin, freed from the burden of our suffering, freed from the, from the futility of our daily lives. And when this happens, it will fulfill another prophecy in the Hebrew scriptures. Take a look at verse 55 in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says this, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The Apostle Paul quotes from Hosea chapter 13, verse 14, where death was supposed to be the punishment and consequence for Israel's adultery and sin. But here in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul turns death into a taunt. What was supposed to have been a consequence for Israel's rebellion, death is now a taunt. It is a victory cheer because in the resurrection, as we've mentioned so far, God has again defeated death. But look, at all, look also at what the Apostle Paul does. He connects the sting of death with sin. Take a look at verses 56. To, uh, to, take a look at verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Now, this seems random because nowhere in 1 Corinthians has the Apostle Paul talked about the law. I mean, even talking about sin here seems somewhat out of place. But for the Apostle Paul, death, sin, and the law all three, if you think about it, are all interconnected. Because if you think about it, the opening pages of scripture, the opening of the story, the beginning of the story, reminds us that sin and death go all the way back to the story of Adam's fall. In fact, in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says that the wages of sin, the consequences of sin, is death. The consequence of injustice, evil, murder, violence, chaos, destruction, is death. And on top of that, the law was given by God but obedience to the law could never save because the law only heightened our disobedience and revealed our failure to keep the law. I mean, I think all of us know that that's to be true. Like if someone tells you not to do something, how likely it is for us to do it. Uh, even though, It's precisely because they told us not to do, to do it. The law, even though it is good, only revealed our sin because it revealed our inability to obey the law. And so what is the answer? Take a look at verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God solves the problem of sin, death, and the law. The way that Paul wants us and, and, and thinks about what God is up to in the resurrection is he clearly says that Jesus is at war with death. The entire story of scripture is God overthrowing the forces of death because all throughout scripture, God is at war with sin and the evil one. Sin and Satan are the causes of death and sin in our world. Just as the opening pages of scripture remind us, Satan, the serpent, will bruise the heel of Jesus, but Jesus will crush the head of the serpent. Jesus inflicted the mortal wound upon all of his enemies in his incarnation. Now, do you see the irony here? While we are clothed with immortality, God the Son dresses himself 
with our frail mortality. While we are clothed with the imperishable, God the Son himself dresses with our perishable humanity. In other words, Jesus switches place with us. By taking on our sin, our rebellion against God, by keeping the law that we can never keep on our own, by going to the cross and rising again, Jesus did what we could never do. This was the greatest exchange in human history. God the Son becomes mortal so that we might become immortal. That is the resurrection story that the Apostle Paul is weaving here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In fact, C.S. Lewis, I mean, of course, second to Paul, said it best when he writes, The Son of God becomes a man to enable men to become sons of God. And then in the end, God in Jesus Christ goes to war with all of his enemies, from the demonic powers to oppressors in our world today, to death and even sin itself. All of our enemies, all of God's enemies, and one day and at the resurrection, Jesus will finally complete the war and he will bring victory for us all. And the only thing left in the grave will be death itself because death is swallowed up in victory. I mean, just, just, just think about that story for a second. This is the great cosmic story that we are all caught up in. And the greatest thing about this story is that it is 100% true. Death will be defeated. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Grief, loss, injustice, shame, all of it will be no more. This is the end that we need to know when our day-to-day seems bleak, when our change seems slow, when all that we hear about every day is just bad news after bad news after bad news. When we hear constant news of murder and violence, whether motivated by racism or not, when our day-to-day is not okay, this is the end that we need to know. Do you know the end? And God says, I am doing something about it all. In God's resurrection of Jesus, God is beginning the final putting to rights of all things. Just as, and, and so just as Moses says, just as he reminds us, the only thing that we need to do is to be, is to be silent. He, Moses says, the Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent. In fact, this is precisely what Isaiah writes in chapter 25, verse 9, the, the, the verse following the passage that we just read. He says, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. I said this last Sunday, which some of you probably forgot anyway. And so I'll say it again tonight. Our waiting on God is based on the conviction, the belief, the promise that God is actively involved in our lives and is vigorously at work in our redemption. Waiting upon God's salvation for him to bring the end. Waiting is not passivity. Waiting doesn't mean doing nothing. It is not resigned to doing nothing, but it means going about our daily tasks, confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions of our daily tasks, just as he had provided for Jesus. Waiting on God does not mean being compelled to work away at keeping up false appearances of piety or showy spirituality. It is the opposite of desperate and panic-driven manipulations of other people or even our circumstances. Waiting is the direct opposite of worrying and hopelessness. Waiting instead means that we go about our days 
convinced that God will act in his time and in his way. The resurrection of our bodies is proof that God will stitch our broken bodies back together. And until God finally and ultimately does so, the Apostle Paul allows us to groan as we wait, to grieve in our brokenness. Dr. Wesley Hill, an Anglican priest, writes this in a book. He says, I have come to realize my need to take the New Testament witness seriously, that groaning and grief and feeling broken are legitimate ways for me to express my cross-bearing discipleship to Jesus. It's not as if groaning means I am somehow doing something wrong. In fact, he says, groaning is a sign of my fidelity. Groaning is a sign of our faithfulness to God. Groaning is one aspect of what it means to follow Jesus because groaning is the faithful expression of waiting for the redemption of our bodies, just as the Apostle Paul promised and says in Romans chapter 8. It is okay to grieve. It is okay to groan, to vent, to pray crazy, raw, open prayers. Because if you do, you are in good company with King David. In fact, you're in good company with David's son. I mean, look at Jesus in front of Lazarus's tomb. Does he say he's in a better place? No, he weeps. It is okay to lament. It is okay to cry. It is okay to take time. It's okay to not be okay. Jesus grieved. God and Jesus weeps. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We grow inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And he says this, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In other words, when we bump up against evil, when we experience evil in our lives, in our lifetime, when we experience death, injustice, broken relationships, broken trust, gossip, the biblical hope is not, hey, don't worry, it's God's plan, or hey, don't worry, lean into it, trust God, it's his will, he's up to something good. The biblical hope is not, don't worry about the cancer or the slander or what others are saying about you. Don't worry, God is in control. That's not what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is that no matter what evil you come up against, Jesus is back from the dead. And if resurrection is possible, then anything is possible. There are no limits to Jesus' power, no limits to Jesus' capacity, no limits to Jesus' ability to redeem and to turn evil for good. And no matter what pain you experience from fallout in a broken, violent, hurting world in rebellion against God where there is collateral damage everywhere, no matter what evil you experience, Jesus is right there at your side with you, turning evil for good, not only in eternity, not only at the end, not only in the new world, but beginning right here in the middle of this old world right now. That is what biblical hope is. That is what Jesus does. He redeems, he saves, he rescues, he, tri he triumphs. The cross and the, and the resurrection are the ultimate proof of how God takes human evil turns it on its head and turns that same evil for good so that despite our sin, there is salvation on the other side of the tomb. And he has been doing it ever since. And no matter what you face tonight, tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, Jesus is back from the dead. Death is dead. And all other shadows of death lose their power 
simply because Jesus is alive. That is what biblical hope is. This is why we need to know what happens in the end. Because it is only when we know God's future for us, when we know the certainty of God's promise for us in the future, then we can work, then we can persevere in the light of the end. Which brings us to our second and final point. We work in light of the end. We work in light of the end. Take a look finally at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, really it's translated family, um, ESB. Um, Therefore, my beloved family, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The therefore here is the conclusion to all that the Apostle Paul has said, that in light of the future that God has prepared for us right now, in light of knowing what will happen in the end, the Apostle Paul expects us, expects that we look at our present lives differently. Now, a casual reader of the Apostle Paul might think, therefore, my beloved family, look forward eagerly to the hope that is set before you. But that is not what the Apostle Paul is saying. Instead, he reminds us of our glorious future only so that our gaze would be set in present time. Rather than having our thoughts focus on what we'll be eating in the new heavens and new earth, rather than asking questions about whether there will be TV or movies in the new heavens and new earth, which I think there will be, by the way, the Apostle Paul grounds us in our present reality. To the, to the daily mundane tasks, responsibilities, friendships, and relationships that await our attention and the call to be steadfast and immovable in them. Why? It's because the resurrection of our bodies, the resurrection of Jesus, has provided all the meaning that we need to get us going for the day, to energize what we do today or tomorrow. It is precisely why our labor in the Lord, whether it's going to class, washing the dishes, playing music, being with the church, painting, whatever it is, why all that stuff when done in the Lord is not in vain is because it's because of the resurrection. The resurrection dignifies all that we do. In fact, Uh, One commentator, Richard Hayes, writes that the resurrection is the necessary foundation for faithful action in the world. God deeply cares about what we do today precisely because he will be refashioning us for the world to come. And so what does it mean to do the work of the Lord and to labor in the Lord? Now, most of us think that the work of the Lord is ministry and laboring in the Lord is like, you know, what pastors and paid church staff do. But it's not what the Apostle Paul is getting at. And the Apostle Paul makes it very clear in other letters of his, like Colossians, that the work of the Lord simply refers to the day-to-day work that we do as either done for the Lord or done for ourselves. And the great genius of what the Apostle Paul is saying is, look at all the different things that you've done this season that you thought were meaningless. Okay, like doing Zoom school, doing your homework, washing the dishes, making your bed. I mean, I don't know what those things are for you, but you do. And the perspective is that it seems... As if all those things that we had done in the quarantine was just like all a waste. Like it was all in vain. Like what was even the point anyway? And the Apostle Paul is actually making the exact opposite point. If you did all those things for Jesus Christ, your day-to-day work, your day-to-day labor, whatever you do in the day-to-day is not in vain when you do it in the name of Jesus. In fact, if you'll remember back in verses 12 to 19, if Jesus has not been raised, then, then in fact, our preaching, my preaching, Our faith, our hope, everything, everything about the Christian life is in vain. 
But here in verse 58, the apostle Paul reverses it. It's, it's actually that because Jesus is risen, it's precisely why everything that you do now actually does matter. Everything that you do has significance and meaning. And the Apostle Paul makes that similar point in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 to 24, where he says this. He says, whatever you do now, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Why? You are serving the Lord Christ, the Lord Messiah. The Apostle Paul, in this context, isn't talking about ministry in these two verses. The context reveals that he's been talking about wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. 80% of the Colossian population consisted of slave-master relationships. 80% of the Colossian population was their labor force. In other words, he's talking about people who are going to work, who are going to school, relating with their family the next morning. And Paul is saying, hey, if you're, going, if you're trying to solve the limit of a function or you're cleaning your own bathroom or some other thing that seems meaningless in your everyday existence, the Apostle Paul says, do it for the Lord. That is how it's not done in vain, even though it might seem like it's worthless because you're no longer working for a mere teacher or a mere parent or a, or a mere friend or a mere pastor or even, or even for yourself. You're working as if the person that you're doing the work for is for Jesus Christ himself. In other words, all of your work is sanctified and dignified when you do it for Jesus. Why? Again, it's because the Apostle Paul has a story in his head about the freedom of our world into its new creation form. And he says that for him, knowing the end makes his day-to-day labor, his toil, his shipwrecks, his suffering and cold from violent animals, his chains, it makes all the suffering for Jesus not in vain. Why? It's because the story that he has about the world and the direction of the world makes his daily efforts worthwhile, even though it is incredibly hard. Everything that the Apostle Paul has said about the resurrection beginning in verse 1 of this chapter comes to its fulfillment here in verse 8, that if the resurrection is true, then everything done in your life is not done for nothing. Our faith and our continual labor as followers of Jesus in whatever we do, I mean, I don't even know what you guys do these days, but whatever you guys do, all of that is rescued from vanity and futility. What is done in the Lord today in the present will last into God's future. This is the greatest encouragement for followers of Jesus, for us, for most of us who are away from the public eye, who are getting faithful, who are, who are doing things faithfully and, 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 and quietly with our God-given tasks, that what we do in the Lord in our present time will last, will matter, and will stand for all time. I mean, we have no idea how God will use our, our prayers, our love for our siblings, our schooling, our honesty, our daily work, our music, our dishwashing. Or We have no idea how God is going to weave all that into the grand story of his new creation. But we have the promise that God will. Because God has dignified every single part of our lives, everything that we do in our lives, simply because Jesus is risen. When you know the story's conclusion, how you experience the story's present today changes. I mean, we might not know how all the pieces are fitting into the story or even the specifics of the plot or even the details, but we know the ending and that is enough for us. You know, going back to Florence Chadwick, 
After her swimming event, she went on record saying, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore ahead, I would have been able to make it. I mean, isn't that tragic? Like if, 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 she, if she just saw the end, she would have been able to make it. Well, two months later, uh, she tried again. And again, just like the first time, the same thick fog rolled in. But this time was different for Florence. She said that she kept a mental image of the shoreline in her mind while she swam. And the, and the mental image of the shoreline kept her going. It helped her persevere when it was cold and when she wanted to give up. And because she kept the mental image in mind, she succeeded in reaching Catalina shore. May we live in light of the end because we know the end of the story. The end of the story does not end with death, with chaos, with injustice, with evil. It ends with triumph, with victory, with death being defeated, with Jesus being risen. The end has already been written. I mean, I don't know why we talk about how like God is continually writing our story. Like God has already written our story. The end is already written. Like Jesus has risen and he has won. Death has been crushed and he will return. That is enough for us. And by God's grace, may that be enough for us. Let's pray.